season is just about to get underway but before all that happens we have one final 2019 or 2018 rather edition of the footy talks podcast to bring to you it's been a relatively busy few days in the canadian soccer news landscape so we will dissect all the headlines for you ahead on today's podcast my name is mitchell tierney and today on the show we will talk some toronto fc transfer news the new mls playoff format and a few champions league draw details as well to do all that with me, Joshua Cloak of The Athletic is back on the show. Josh, thanks for taking the time uh, during this busy uh, time of year. I finished my Christmas present wrapping this morning, so my Ooh. my obligations are, are, are done. So, uh, yeah, happy to be here. Very nice, very nice. I still have uh, one Christmas gift to get that, uh, so I'll be, uh, I'll be in the busy malls for the next little bit. But um, speaking of... Christmas shopping, Toronto FC, they seem to have done a little bit as well as they uh, start to at least give us an early indication of what their roster will look like for next season. And uh, probably the the biggest bit of roster news for Toronto FC is the fact that they will be bringing back Brazilian fullback Arrow. Uh, they've picked up the option to buy on his contract and um, yeah, the 22-year-old will be back next season. I think uh, you know, this is a player that I think some Toronto FC fans kind of forgot uh, just how quickly he was able to mesh into the team, and especially with Greg Vanny's kind of um, importance he's been placing on wide players. I mean, there were times last season where Aura was literally the only outlet Toronto FC could find because they were so clogged up in the middle. So it seems like, um, especially if they're headed in that direction, a pretty smart uh, renewal from Toronto FC. Yeah, and it's one that, that looked like it was kind of a foregone conclusion. Um, and I say that because he was with a few members of the team, Jay Chapman, Alex Bono, and, and kind of a, a mini training camp in L.A. that, that uh, Jim Liston, who was on the team's coaching staff, was was hosting uh, a few weeks back. And he was, you know, spotted in photos. I wasn't sure early on. Uh, I noticed, you know, the way that, that Aro had kind of written his uh, an Instagram post, it seemed like he was using a lot of past tense verbs to kind of describe his time with the club. Um, so I thought he, you know, he might be gone. But, the you know, once you see him in and around the club, it seemed uh, it seemed like it was going to happen. I mean, again, like you said, this is a player that kind of got lost in the shuffle um, when he was signed. He, he definitely didn't. He wasn't unveiled in the kind of manner that that Vanderweel and and Agar um, Keche were, but I would argue he was just as important an addition this year uh-huh. as any other. And what was really interesting about the way he played, uh, he almost played like a midfielder in that he was so skilled on the ball. Uh, without generalizing, that's kind of a hallmark of a lot of Brazilian players, but. He was so skilled on the ball, so he could press up and he could cut into the middle um, of the midfield, you know, into the center of the park and really catch defenders uh, on their toes and, and free up space for other players. So, he, he again, he, he showed a lot of offensive flair, particularly in, in deep areas of the park as well. I mean, because he played in that right-back position, I always looked forward to the first half of matches when he'd be playing on the side of the, the, the BMO field press box because he'd press so deep, you know, into corners and, and he had crossing ability as well. Um, 
Obviously, he goes down with an injury because who didn't last year? Um, but I think, you know, like you said, Greg Vanius is, he wants to see, um, you know, more width in his team. He doesn't necessarily want, I had a conversation with, with Greg the other day, he doesn't necessarily want to see that from his fullbacks as much as he does attacking midfielders. So it'll be interesting to see how he uses RO as a player who does have that propensity to kind of get up and and break free. But look, I mean, we don't know exactly how much they paid for him. Uh, we probably won't know for a few months. But his ability to kind of seamlessly adapt to MLS was one that, you know, Akeche didn't possess. And, and uh, if you can find a player that has never played in MLS but can adapt quickly, you better hold on to him, right? Yeah, and it even took a, a veteran like Vanderveel a bit of, a little bit to adapt to to MLS as well. Obviously, he was much quicker than Akeche, who straight up never did adapt to MLS. But um, yeah, that, that was very impressive, especially again from a 22-year-old who does have so much potential. Um, there was another addition Tronovsi made, and that was Nick DeLeon, uh, an MLS veteran in the MLS re-entry draft. This one was a, a little more surprising for me. I know he's a solid player who's been in the league for several years, but um, I guess generally just, just giving the team more depth in MLS experience. Yeah, and again, I had a chance to, to speak to, to Greg Vanny about this in, in a story that will be coming out uh, at The Athletic, um, hopefully today, um, without giving away too much. He sees mm-hmm. uh, De Leon as a, a really capable attacking player. You know, De Leon has been listed as a defender. People wondered, is he a, you know, is he a wingback? Where is he going to play? Greg Vanny plans to utilize him as an attacking winger, right? So that kind of shed some light on on exactly you know who we're going to see in that attacking winger role that that Vanny and and management have been talking about since the the season ended um you know Greg Vanny has, has known DeLeon for a while um DeLeon's father Leroy coached Greg Vanny um so there's a connection there and he speaks very highly of him and you talk to people in and around the DC organization they have very good things to say about him as a person and and that's something that I think TFC want to make a hallmark of, of their signings is is people you know that are, are have good qualities as a person you know very coachable. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where he fits because again this is a player that has a lot of MLS experience and um, hasn't always been used in that attacking winger role. Um, but you know capable enough to definitely understand what that looks like in MLS, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, speaking of another MLS veteran, Toronto FC, uh, their last bit of kind of roster news on the on the big club was the fact that they traded Clint Irwin uh, back to Colorado. I think this was a move that, I mean, has been uh, talked about for a long time just because obviously of the salary Clint Irwin commanded and and matched that with the, with the lack of minutes he's been getting behind Alex Bono. Um, but I'm kind of curious to see where Toronto FC will go from here. I know they um, uh, had a Brazilian kid that they were looking at for a bit that didn't work out. Is that kind of the, you know, the the angle you see them going at is is kind of going a little bit younger behind Alex Bono because um, even on Toronto FC two right now they don't have any keepers, so there's not much in the organization keeper wise as as they move forward here. Yeah, I mean a few things on the goalkeeper front. Um, it's my understanding that that Brazilian goalkeeper you. You referenced uh, whose name escapes me. I should have it in front of me, but I don't. Uh, he did arrive in Toronto 
to take his physical, uh, but failed the physical. That's my understanding. Uh, so that didn't work out. Uh, I was also surprised that TFC didn't take uh, a goalkeeper in the MLS re-entry draft. Um, and I say that because there was a number of goalkeepers, I believe I counted eight goalkeepers, who earned less than Irwin uh, last year while also posting uh, a better expected goals against. Um, so there were players available. There were goalkeepers available, especially MLS-ready goalkeepers available. Um, and I, it, all of those that were available struck me as names that you know would be capable backups because there's no doubt anymore, and, and perhaps there wasn't last year either, this is Alex Bono's team. I mean, when he re-signs his long-term contract extension, and then when they let Clint Irwin go, that's that's a big vote of confidence for a young goalkeeper. Um, I don't know who that is right now, and, and I wish I did know. Um, you know, Caleb Patterson, Sewell, um, he is he did re-sign with the team, but uh, we know they want three goalkeepers. Um, it, it'll be tough to, to see where that third goalkeeper comes from, because like you said, TFC 2 released their roster yesterday after a number of roster moves. They don't have a single single goalkeeper uh, on their roster. So there will be a lot of new faces kind of between the sticks up at uh, up at the BMO training ground soon enough. But I, I don't know who that player is. I, again, I'm surprised it didn't come in the re-entry draft, but it's just another... It's just another player that the TFC will have on their shopping list uh, this winter, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, the goalkeeper, the Brazilian goalkeeper was Lucas Paisuza. I did some quick Googling just so uh, we got that fact out there. But um, the the other bit of news with Toronto FC is, is the confirmation of when they kind of start that road to redemption in the CONCACAF Champions League. Um, they're they're going to start on February 19th for the first leg uh, down in Panama against Club Atletico Independiente. Uh, the home leg is is on February 26th, so it looks like the BMO field's going to get a, kind of an early test in terms of um, the new surface, certainly, isn't it? Yeah, well, um, again, everything I've heard is that they're putting in a lot of, I mean, it, Bill Manning's, um, Bill Manning launched into a seven-minute kind of, uh, uh, description of, of what the changes of BMO field are going to look like this year during his season end uh, availability. Um, and it was tough to keep up, but uh, <laughs> it does sound like it's incredibly detailed and it does sound like the club is taking every single precaution to make sure that, you know, the pitch looks better than it did last year. Um, I, I wish I, I, I wish I could get to that away leg in, in Panama. I don't know if it's going to happen, but, um, it's it's going to be interesting because, like you said, it's going to be early on. Uh, won't be as cold, uh, and it won't be in the kind of altitude that they had to play in in Colorado mm-hmm. last year, uh, which was kind of an underrated. You know, even though they kind of walked through that first leg quite easily, or not, not that first leg, that first series quite easily. I think if you talk to people in the club, playing in that cold and playing in altitude. You know, some argue that it hurt them just as much as those frequent trips to Mexico did. So it'll be good. It is a bit of a long trip, but it won't be cold. It won't be in as much altitude. So uh, so that's a benefit for the club. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, 
They also get their MLS season underway on March 2nd. They'll be on the road in Philadelphia, and their home opener is on March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day against the New England Revolution. So uh, there's a few dates you guys can start marking in your calendar. Um, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's talk about Toronto FC2 as they also uh, kind of announced a lot of roster moves over the past couple days. Uh, Robert Boscovich, Dante Campbell, and Matt Serbel have all been re-upped for 2019, but uh, a number of departures, Cal Bjornathan, Tim Kubel, Malik Hamilton, uh, they didn't have their contracts extended, and uh, a number of other players are on their way out. Probably the most interesting of which is uh, Subasa Endo, who was far and away their best player this past season. But um, at the same time, you'd think Endo would be kind of looking for a first-team contract at this point with someone. And um, there's the there's kind of the regular issue that he's an international, not a domestic player. I think if he was a, a domestic player or considered an, a domestic player under MLS rules, he'd be... Uh, He'd be on a first-team contract right now with what he's done, but um, I guess in general the club kind of uh, getting younger as it makes this transition into the USL League One or, or Division Two or whatever the heck they're calling it. Yeah, and that was kind of uh, something you assumed was going to happen. I mean, look, I, I, I do feel for Endo because he's a player that is, as recently as 2016 looked like you know he was a home run in terms of a draft pick. He looked to have his spot in the midfield kind of lined up. Um, he's one of those players that, you know, represents the jump between USL and MLS because, you know, when I watched him late in the season with TFC2 in USL, he was bossing the league. I mean, I believe he had eight goals and 14 appearances. And this is, you know, this is a player that comes on to a team without a ton of preparation. So he's a player that can step into any lineup and contribute, um, Again, I think the thing that, that's that's holding Subasa back is his international status. Um, I don't doubt that Subasa will land on his feet. He's back in Japan right now, uh, so we'll see where he lands. But a number of names, you know, a number of players um, that weren't picked up, like you said, Kyle Bjornathan and um, Lars Eckenrode, Tim Kubel, these were kind of older players um, that represented that, that kind of in-betweener phase between being a young prospect and being a, a first-team ready player. Um, and, and yeah, this is a, a move by TFC to just get younger. We're going to see a team full of 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds next year. Uh, what you are going to see is them getting minutes and getting a lot of regular minutes. And I know that's an, a priority for the organization is to make sure that these young players get regular playing time. And that was tough in USL last year because – you know, even though they didn't, you have to win some games, right? And you can't mm-hmm. always do that in USL when you're playing against men and you're fielding a team of 18 and 19-year-olds. So this will be good for development of players and it'll be good to just, like I said, just get minutes because, you know, I know in speaking to people in the organization that that's something that they value very, very highly is making sure these 18 19, 20-year-olds are not sitting on the bench, right? So it was it was kind of expected to see players like Bjornathan Kubel, uh, Endo, and Eckenrode leave. Um, you, you don't love to see that happen because they're all good people. But I, I do know that, you know, um, I'm not sure exactly where Kubel is going to land. I know Eckenrode uh, was, has signed with another club, um, and that's bound to happen, right? So... We'll see what happens with those players. But again, we can expect a very, very young TFC2 next season. 
Yeah, and speaking of a of a very young Toronto FC two team, uh, they they made a bit of news this week when uh, they made their youngest homegrown signing player ever, signing a fourteen year old um, by the age of Jaquiel Marshall Ruddy, um, a player who had twenty goals in in twelve games last year at the U fifteen USDA. Um, you know, whenever a player of this age kind of gets signed, even if it's to a second team contract, a, a lot of comparisons get made, obviously. Um, I, I don't know. I, I was reasonably surprised that, uh, Toronto FC made such a young signing, but, uh, have you heard anything about this player and, and why maybe they, uh, they made this decision? Well, this is the result of, of Greg Vanny being as plugged into TFC's academy as he is. I mean, he, he touts the fact that he can you know, recite the names and, and stats and backgrounds and, and pros and cons of every player in the academy, which is pretty impressive and, and a, a bit obsessive too, of course. But all that means is that when you see a player and, and you feel confident about a player and what he could become, you want to lock him up. I mean, it also could mean that, that TFC, TFC recognized that maybe there were other teams sniffing around on him. Uh, and you don't want to lose a player if, if you think either he's going to contribute to your organization eventually or if he could become a, an asset that could be moved in the future. Um, no, this was a move that I think caught a lot of people off guard. But um, again, like you said, anytime you sign a 14-year-old, you're probably going to hear a little bit more about him uh, in the future. Um, so we'll see what happens with him. But like I said, it, it, this is just a result of, of Vanny being plugged into the academy and kind of understanding what types of players he wants to see uh, in the first team in the future. Obviously, this is a, a player that's that's quite far away from the first team. But um, again, it, it speaks to this team having a long-term plan, right? Yeah, it does. And uh Finally, before we uh, move on from Toronto FC, if you're like me and you still need a last-minute Christmas gift, for, uh, particularly for a soccer fan, I do highly recommend Josh's book, uh, Come On You Reds. It's all about Toronto FC themselves and how they went from the league laughing stock into MLS Cup champions, and you can pretty much grab it at wherever books are sold, so uh, make sure to add that to your last-minute shopping list. Um, but let's uh, talk about MLS as a whole and um, how that path to MLS Cup has very much changed in, in the past couple of weeks. Um, kind of the biggest news around the league is the fact that they are changing their playoff format. Uh, 14 teams will now qualify for the playoffs, which is up from 12 last season. And only the top seed in the in the league or in both uh, conferences will get a bye through the first round instead of the top two teams. And everything is now single elimination as well with the higher seed getting the home field advantage um there's a couple of keys here there's a couple of reasons why they did it both being so they can end the season a little bit earlier which means uh less you know hand numbing mls cup finals um which uh especially the uh 2016 when uh, i don't know about you but i was in that auxiliary press box outside and it was uh, pretty cold. Um, and uh, on top of this, there'll be no international break disruptions as well. So uh, that's very helpful, uh, especially for teams like Toronto FC, who do have a lot of internationals and a lot of internationals who uh, potentially could be playing key games uh, during that time. Um, so what are your kind of your thoughts on this format change? And uh, I mean, obviously, it's been pretty divisive so far. So there's there's some positives and some negatives as well. Yeah, I, I like it. I like it for a few reasons. I, I don't like it for a few reasons. I mean, 14 
of 24 teams in the playoffs, even though MLS has said we're going to stick with 14 teams as the league expands, and that's fine. But um, 14 of 24 in this first season does seem like a lot to get Mm -hmm. into the playoffs. Um, That's probably the only thing I, I don't like, but if they stick at 14 as they continue to expand, then that won't be such a bad thing. I mean, what I like is just how quickly it all happens and and how it places more of an importance on the regular season, right? Because what you saw a lot of times uh, was teams kind of get into one of those lower seeds very much kind of, and then the first leg of, of the, you know, their playoff round, just kind of camp out, park the bus, get out with kind of a, a nil-nil draw maybe in, in, in an away leg and then do some damage at home or vice versa, right? So, um, I like the idea of, of one-legged series um, because it, it adds a, a certain element of drama to these games, and it, it should be a lot better for TV ratings as well. The idea of you know one game is is something that I think <clears throat> excuse me a lot of American viewers can kind of get behind. Um, so that's mm-hmm. certainly interesting, and and yeah, it it rewards or it really rewards just one team per conference. But I mean, as it should. Um, so I, 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 and I really like how quickly it all happens. Um, I think given that it's at the end of the season, teams won't have as much time to prepare for opponents, prepare for games. You might see some kind of chaotic games, uh, some chaotic playoff matches, but that's good too, right? That leads to mistakes. That leads to goals. Goals leads to viewership. And at the end of the day, like MLS should be concerned with, bringing up those TV numbers, right? So this is a plan to me that is is very much in line with kind of traditional North American sports playoffs where the playoffs come fast and hard. There's something happening every single night. You just you just tune in. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when it's the NHL or the NBA playoffs, you, you're not really, unless you're a hardcore fan, you're not really concerned about who's playing. You tune in just to see you know, playoff hockey or playoff basketball. And I think that's something we could see MLS market too, is just this idea of this is playoff soccer. It's coming fast. It's coming hard. It's it's going to be contained in a short amount of time. So good for them for, for trying something different when that old format was very clearly broken, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move on to a topic that we haven't really discussed in this podcast yet it seems like it's been um, especially considering my Twitter feed around for a long time but uh, we haven't quite had a chance to discuss it on this on this show yet and that's the Ottawa Fury situation um, evidently had their sanctioning pulled by CONCACAF to play in uh, the USL with my understanding being because it's a non-division one league outside of their country. Um, what do you kind of make of, of this decision from CONCACAF and, and kind of the aftermath that's followed? Because it's been a pretty fascinating story to follow as, you know, we're, we're so close to this USL season getting started and obviously the launch of the Canadian Premier League. And um, it's it's been such a, you know, such a shadow over everything that's, that's kind of uh, both of those two leagues are, are trying to do to start the season, especially in Canada. Yeah, I think the kind of overriding uh, feeling with this was that, you know, you wanted to see Ottawa join the CPL. And I think a lot of Ottawa Fury fans wanted to see them join the CPL, but not like this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this was kind of a, a strange move that I uh, had heard rumblings about. And, and to be honest, I'm still kind of 
uh, unpacking it and making phone calls on it because um, it's a it's still a very fluid situation. I mean, my understanding is is Ottawa is, has gone to a certain court in Switzerland to to seek help with this. Um, I I don't look. It sets a, a very interesting precedent, um, and especially when you consider how this might eventually impact Canada's three MLS teams. Um, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't be surprised if the Ottawa Fury don't play next year. Now that doesn't mean they will. It doesn't mean they won't. I, I just wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens because you don't want to be this close to the season. You don't want to be told how things are going to go. Uh, you know, they've sold season tickets, at, you know, under the assumption they'll be playing in the USL. Um, so it, it, it all sets a very kind of interesting precedent. Um, and you don't want to be, if, if you're the fear, you don't want to be forced into something without having a real, you know, good, clear understanding of, of what you're getting into. So perhaps they take the year off uh, and then they do enter the CPL in 2020. Uh, again, that's not something you, you want, but my understanding is Ottawa's owner does not want to be told what to do. Um, and I, I, this, this decision angered a lot of people in Ottawa caused a lot of confusion in Ottawa, but it, again, it really, really frustrated a lot of people. So you don't want to be making decisions kind of against your will. So we'll see what happens, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see the fury in 2019. Yeah, that'd be too bad, obviously, because they've been a, a pretty good spot for a bunch of Canadian players. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been one of those teams that has really taken uh, having a Canadian core to heart and ha- have had at least some success with doing that. So, yeah, it'd obviously be, you know, as much as the new Canadian Premier League is going to bring more jobs to Canadian players, this would uh, would shudder a few. So uh, it's disappointing in that regard. But uh, on the CanPL note, we have seen a few more of the of the player signings kind of beyond those initial signings, guys like Marco Carducci, um, you know, being signed up um, and some of the first few international signings. Uh, what have you kind of made of the, of the general idea or general caliber of the player we've seen so far? Because uh, now we ha- kind of have more of an idea of what the, you know, what are the, what the baseline roster uh, of some of these teams might be made up of. Yeah, these are, these are exactly the kind of players that, that we could expect. You know, there's there's young Canadian players from abroad. There's, you know, a lot of USL players, former USL players. Um, and, and that's something that's really interesting to me is, is you know, the conversations I had with, with some of the former USL players, Skylar Thomas, you know, they all admitted it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle in USL. It's very easy to just kind of not, um, you know, not be able to make your mark because there's so many teams. Uh, there's teams spread all throughout North America. Uh, you're playing so many games. Um, you know, there's no there's no pro rel, so it's tough to kind of, you know, see where your first division uh, dreams will land. I guess. Um, but yeah, I think there. This is a these are players that are really seeking an opportunity to make a name for themselves. And anytime you have a brand new league in a country, um, you know, that, that does have a, a kind of a soccer background and, and a, and a soccer history, and especially one that, 
you know, is going to be hosting World Cup games in a few years. People are going to be really interested in what this league is all about. Uh, so if you're a player, you look at that and you say, well, this is an opportunity for me to take center stage. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of why, to come back to it, that's why this, this Fury thing is, is, is frustrating because things have been going so, so well for the CPL. Um, and they still are, but they're just, there's going to be a lot of people paying attention to this league because, um, because of the World Cup games that will be hosted in Canada, because of sponsorship opportunities, because people are very curious, what is Canada about as a soccer nation? Um, so good on a lot of these players for taking the chance uh, on CPL on a league that hasn't kicked a ball yet. But I think these are players that understand that, you know, inherently there is a bit of a responsibility uh, to grow the game in Canada. And I think a lot of players feel that that idea resonates with them. And so that was kind of the message I got from a lot of the players that I have spoken to and and I think you're going to see a lot more of that you're going to see a lot of community outreach you're going to see these players getting out into the community I know some people have said well they're not big name players but if you can make an impact in the community that is coming out to support you I mean it doesn't really matter where you're from right so that's important and I, I think these players understand that they, yeah, they do have a responsibility to continue to to grow the game in Canada, right? Yeah, I think we've seen that with the Ontario Hockey League and with some of the junior leagues. I mean, they're cycling players through so fast, but if a player can really, you know, connect with the community in the limited time he's there, um, they really get behind them. So, um, yeah, certainly that's something that I think we can see. And uh, you mentioned sponsorship and um, how kind of this you know, the World Cup and everything surrounding Canadian soccer right now will increase sponsorship opportunities. And we've kind of seen the the start of that this past week with the announcement that Canada Soccer has partnered with Nike to provide their kits and, and training gear and that sort of thing um, for, for the foreseeable future. I, I haven't seen details on how long the, the deal will last, but you would assume it's a you know, with the way they've kind of talked about it and how big this deal is, it would stretch uh, pretty close to that uh, 2026 World Cup is obviously that's that's when uh, the big money is to be made, probably. Um, I, I think a pretty positive thing for the national team. I, I, I know they had a, you know, a decent relationship with Umbro, but uh, Nike's just a bigger global brand. We've already seen with some of the advertising they put out that, um, you know, this is the real deal for them. And and with some of the marketable players Canada now has, it's, you know, it's a bit of an exciting time as they kind of make this transition. Yeah, I'm glad we're finally talking kits. That's really all I really want to talk about. But uh, no, like, <laughs> listen, it, it, I still have a soft spot for Umbro. Uh, they make great kits. They really do. Um, but I, I do understand that, that it's if, like you said, if, if Canada soccer is going to take that next leap um, and, and become a bit of a global player as they host the World Cup, you know, you're going to want to sign with, you know, a kit provider that has a more global reach, uh, and that's Nike. Um, just from a, a, a purely kit nerd uh Stance. I'm a little worried because Nike does rely really heavily on template kits. Uh, you, you saw that through 2016 and 17, where almost every Nike team, international team, was wearing you know a variation of of the same kind of kit. Um, and we'll see what they end up looking like. But look, 
Alfonso Davies is a Nike athlete. Christine Sinclair is a Nike athlete. Um, this is not a surprise. Um, and if Nike, you know, does understand that, that this is still a bit, as much as, a, a, you know, it's Canada does have a real rich soccer culture, it is still a bit of an untapped market in terms of young people wearing national team kits. I mean, you know, you walk up and down the streets, um, you don't see a ton of red Canadian Canada shirts. Um, you'll see them when you're hanging with the Voyageurs, but you're not going to see them much otherwise. And I think they recognize that. Um, I don't own any Canadian soccer kits. Um, so anyway, we'll see what this ends up looking like, but uh, I, I hope it's not a template kit and good for, for Canada soccer for, for taking that next step, right? Yeah, I'm still sad I never got my hands on one of those uh, blue Umbro kits that they released for the centennial season. I think that's kind of their kind of the best kit that they put out during their time. But um, yeah, certainly this is a, you know, just another big step for Canada soccer forward as they, you know, start to start to gear up for the the marketing cycle that will be that World Cup. Um, Let's let's move on to our final topic, which uh, we'll just talk briefly about the Champions League draw. Um, And a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty big one for Bayern. I mean, in terms of you know, the difficulty of the draw. Um, this one has to tear at you a little bit because I know how much you uh, you love Jurgen Klopp and, and everything he's done at Liverpool and internationally. So uh, I, I know where your allegiances will lie, but this is quite a, uh, you know, quite a great tie for especially the neutral. It is because you have two teams um, kind of trending in opposite directions too. Um, and you have two teams that play very contrasting styles of play. And you have two teams that, don't have a ton of history in the Champions League, but a lot of the the characters involved do. Uh, you can bet that that 2013 Champions League final loss still really stings with Klopp, and he would love a chance to to get back at Bayern. Um, you know, the these games are still two months away, so anything can happen between then. But right now, you may look at it as a coin toss because. You know, Bayern are Bayern and, and Liverpool are playing well, but can you really bet against a, a, a Liverpool team that is just humming right now? They're playing such fluid attacking football, and it's so nice to see. They're just such a treat to watch, and, and Bayern at times just looks stagnant in attack. Um, I have I have requested permission to get to Anfield for that first leg because I have a I I have hopes that this is going to be a you know one of those once in a lifetime matches. Um, and like mm-hmm. you said, it's it's good for neutrals too because when there's 16 teams in the Champions League, sometimes you see draws and and no disrespect to the two teams involved, but Roma Porto probably isn't going to get a lot of attention outside you know, those fans, you want these, these matches, right? You want the Liverpool Bayerns, you want the United PSG draws, you, you want matches with intrigue and you want big players and you want storylines. I mean, that's why, that's why you watch the Champions League. Um, again, a lot can happen in two months, but I, when you looked at all the teams that Bayern could have drawn, Liverpool was at the bottom of the list, right? Even I, I even had, Liverpool behind Atletico Madrid, who have given Bayern a lot of trouble in the past. Um, 
because again, this is a Liverpool team that that's absolutely humming. Um, and I know Man City are still kind of the class of the Champions League, but again, you have a, a, a manager now that's lost two Champions League finals, and and that really burns. And and you can you can bet that Klopp's going to be putting everything into uh, this round of sixteen match, which again. If you want to see great attacking football, I don't know. We haven't seen a lot of that from Bayern yet. We have seen it from Liverpool. So, boy, can't wait for this one. Yeah, for sure. And uh, reading through uh, Rafa Honingstein's great book, uh, Bring the Noise on on Jurgen Klopp, uh, I know how aggrieved he was by Bayern Munich and the way they kind of you know, stole his style and players when he was a Borussia Dortmund manager. And you mentioned, of course, the... Uh, you know the final losses, so uh, definitely, you know, definitely going to be one where he's he's trying to get a measure of revenge now that he has a few more, uh, you know, resources on his side uh, with Liverpool. Um, this this was a great draw in general for me. I mean, there's just so many great fixtures in this, and it feels like uh, for once all the favorites were able to to kind of get out of their group, which has made kind of you know a bunch of titans going head to head. Any other uh, matchups that you'll you know you mentioned some of them, but any other names in this draw that you'll really be um, looking for? Because yeah, like I said, there's there's going to be some real clashes of the titans in this round. Yeah, I mean. Y- PSG and, and Man United is the other big one. Um, and he, you know, there there comes a point where you just have to start feeling bad for, for Man United fans. It's just been such mm-hmm. a tough year for them. And you just think, oh, if they could have gotten maybe a bit of an easier draw and you get through to the quarters and, and it just brings a bit of light because you, you do have to start wondering if they'll even be back in the Champions League next year. Um, and then you draw a team that... that you know, has one of the best, you know, attacking fronts on the planet. So that one, it doesn't really look great for Man United. But, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Tottenham Dortmund is another one that's really, really tough to call. Um, And I mean this when I say that Dortmund have looked like uh, one of the most creative sides in Europe this year. Um, So how will, you know, how will Tottenham's backline do against them? Um, again, another one that I'm really interested in and I do love upsets. I I love them in in any sport and I would think that Ajax have a chance against Madrid, even though, you know, Madrid are, you know, the reigning champions and, and this is a tournament that they've owned, but the way Ajax have looked and the way that this team has just been able to let the horses out of their barn and just let the young players play. It's been so exciting to watch. Um, so that one screams a bit of uh, a potential upset to me. But uh, look, I mean, these are, in general, these are great draws. Again, like I said, the the Roma-Porto, that that's kind of an outlier, right? Every other draw has some intrigue to it. Atletico-Juve, this will be a real tactical kind of chess match, Um so that'll be fascinating to watch as well. So, yeah, clear your calendars, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm interested. Of course, you mentioned two months away. So by that time, we're not even sure what Ajax will look like just because um, they they seem like one of those clubs who are always in the news in terms of especially some of their center backs being rumored to go out. But, yeah, if they can keep it together, um, certainly could be an upset. And we, uh, 
We'll have plenty more reaction to that uh, and the Champions League draw specifically as it relates to the Spanish sides on our La Liga show, um, which is also released on this uh, Footy Talks podcast network. But as for the Footy Talks proper, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, Josh, thanks for joining me and uh, have happy holidays. Thanks, Mitch. Same to you. And uh, same to the rest of you as well. Uh, Thank you for all your support in the inaugural year of this podcast. We have some exciting things planned for 2019. So uh, catch all of you in the new year.